as I saw the work that the Joseph Smith Papers was set out to do, the vision they had of how they could really bring Joseph Smith and his history beyond just the interest of of those who like Mormon history, but also who want to see him as an important figure in 19th century America. Yeah, so a broader application of who he was in the in the narrative of U.S. history instead of just Mormon history. Absolutely. Mormons will better understand their own religion if they have a deeper understanding of American history, and Americans will better understand their past if they understand uh, the smaller aspect of the Mormon role. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hello, I'm Nick Galetti, host of this episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. Our guest today is Spencer W. McBride, author of the Revelations and Context essay, Governments and Law, on Section 134 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Spencer W. McBride earned a Ph.D. in history at Louisiana State University. He is a historian and documentary editor at the Joseph Smith Papers. A specialist in the history of the American Revolution and the early American Republic, McBride frequently writes and speaks on the evolving role of religion in American political culture. Welcome, Spencer McBride, to LDS Perspectives. Thank you very much. So uh, I saw your picture on your website, and uh, my first thought was, man, this guy is young. He's got to be like the Doogie Howser of Mormon history or something because he is a young guy. You look 25 in that picture, but you got a PhD. I'll take the 25. You'll take the 25. Uh, I'm a little older than that, but hopefully <laughs> that's good. Uh, I can I can keep the young looks. And you went to uh, you went to LSU. I should yes. have called it Louisiana State University. That's right. So uh, I you got your master's degree and your PhD there. Correct. Why LSU? You know, when I finished undergrad, I was looking at different graduate programs, and Louisiana State University had just hired uh, Andrew Burstein and Nancy Eisenberg, two premier historians in the early American Republic. And I wanted to study with both of them. And so it was the perfect opportunity to study with terrific mentors in a good setting. Yeah. See, I served my mission in Baton Rouge. So oh, I, excellent. I was in and around LSU all the time, and it's pretty cool Pretty cool place. It is. Great food, great environment. Excellent food. Excellent food. Almost too excellent. <laughs> so you, you after you graduated, got your PhD, you decided the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the place for you to be as your employment. Yes. What brought you to the church? Well, the, the Joseph Smith Papers, a project I'd watched from afar, advertised, as they usually do when they are seeking to hire a, a documentary editor— that they want, were looking for someone with expertise in early American religious culture. And that's what I studied. Now, in my graduate studies, I didn't focus on the Mormons. I was more focused on Protestant clergymen. But I had a good grasp on what was going on in the broader context of American history and specifically American religion at the time that so much of the formative events of the Mormon past are occurring. And so I applied and became very enthusiastic as I saw the work that the Joseph Smith Papers was set out to do, the vision they had of how they could really bring Joseph Smith and his history beyond just the interest of, of those who like Mormon history, but also who want to see him as an important figure in 19th century America. Yeah, so a broader application of who he was in the 
in the narrative of U.S. history instead of just Mormon history. Absolutely. Mormons will better understand their own religion if they have a deeper understanding of American history. And Americans will better understand their past if they understand um, the smaller aspect of the Mormon role. Yeah. And I imagine that made you perfectly qualified to talk on Section 134 and write this essay. The Revelations in Context Project, of course, is one that we hope to bring greater attention to with our series of podcasts here. But this particular essay focuses on a section of the Doctrine and Covenants that you've entitled it Governments and Law. Those that have read this section know that this is definitely about the principles that Latter-day Saints, at least early Latter-day Saints, applied to government and its proper role. But uh, we call it Scripture. It's in the Doctrine and Covenants. So but before we get into that, let's let's get into that religious and political environment of the United States at the time that Section 134 was presented, which was August 1835. Yeah, so what's going on in the United States at this time, you have the emergence of the second party system, the Whigs and the Democrats, brought on by Andrew Jackson's presidency. And you also have the Second Great Awakening continuing And once marginal Protestant dissenting groups such as the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Baptists are gaining more traction, greater acceptance in American society and in American politics. And when viewed from that perspective, it's easy for historians or casual observers to say, yes, American religious liberty was alive and well. But if you look at these other groups that remained on the fringes of American society and American uh, religious culture, the Mormons, the Shakers, Catholics even, Jews, it was anything but the heyday of American religious liberty. And why do you say that? Well, the Mormons were chased out of uh, Jackson County. They were attacked by mobs. Catholics were facing frequent discrimination. So were Jews. The Shakers dealt with their fair share of mobs and riots. So Mormons weren't being picked on. Well, not, they, they not were. Uniquely. They were, but they weren't the only ones. Yeah. Uh, and they had this opportunity at, based out of necessity to declare their rights and to declare what they thought a government that would protect the religious liberty of all its citizens would look like. Well, when we look back at the at American history, a lot of people say this country was founded on the principle of religious freedom. And I've heard that phrase said quite a few times. And it does seem that in many respects there is some merit for that. Are we seeing people still clinging to that concept of religious freedom? It was a nice story. It sounded good. But the reality is that that's a myth. The country was not founded as a haven of religious liberty. It was not founded on the principle of religious liberty. You have in the Constitution certain protections for the federal government not to infringe upon people's religious rights. But the Bill of Rights did not apply to the individual states until much later than this. So Missouri, for instance, could, in 1838, after this this section of the Doctrine and Covenants was published, expel citizens who happened to be a religious minority or because they were a religious minority under the threat of state-sanctioned extermination. And the federal government was powerless to do anything, or at least those who occupied prominent positions in the federal government declared it powerless to do anything. Yeah. And so we see it's really quite this myth and this idea that for Protestants, yes, you might feel this sense of religious liberty. I can worship according to the dictates of my own conscience. But what about non-Protestants? 
does it extend to Jews? Does it extend to Catholics, to Mormons? We look today, does it extend to Muslims? And there was quite a large Muslim population in the United States at this time, but the majority of them happened to be slaves in the South. And the restriction of their rights went far beyond religious liberty to their own personal freedom. Well, with this essay that you have of governments and law, you have selected someone who had ties to this American Revolution and this kind of pride, if you will, that they were living in a land where they had hoped to have some sense of religious freedom. That individual was Lyman White. Why is he the focal character of your essay? Yeah, and there were a lot of different individuals I could have focused on, but in wanting to have a story and a a very personal story to make this issue really come alive to readers, at least I I hope it does, uh, Lyman White was ideal because he, in his petition to the United States Senate after the expulsion of the saints from Missouri in 1838, he writes specifically about his father's service in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War and his own service in the War of 1812. And it's a very compelling idea now, as it was then, that our veterans, the men who go and fight for freedom, are sometimes tragically denied that freedom for which they believe they were fighting in the years after the war. And that's exactly what we have with Lyman White. He believed that he had fought for individual liberties, a broad set of liberties that happened to include religious liberty. And he felt that he was being denied that. And he wanted to draw upon his service, his status as a veteran, to bring that attention to the United States government. So who is he within the context of the LDS Church this time? So he was an uh, early church member and leader. He was also one who was very active in the militia formed by the church to defend themselves against the Missouri State Militia. He was very much in favor of Mormons taking up arms to defend themselves. And he had also, like many of his fellow religionists, lost property in Missouri when he moved to Illinois as a refugee. And so he had a stake in the game, and he also had a prominent place in the church in the years immediately following the Missouri War, at least. So in light of this background, when we have this section 134 where a bulk of it is talking about, again, the relationship of government and religion, how then can we categorize section 134? It is, in its headline, it says that it's it's really a declaration of principles. It doesn't claim to be a revelation per se, but would you call it a reactive document, or is this a proactive or visionary section of the Doctrine and Covenants? All of the above, yes. And that's what makes it so fascinating, because when we just come across it in the Doctrine and Covenants, without the full story, we just think, oh, here are some principles, here's what we believe on government. And it can be quoted by people who want to protest the government. It can be quoted by people who want to sustain the government and want to criticize those protesting the government. And the reason it can apply to both sets is because the Mormons were using it for both purposes simultaneously. They found themselves in a very difficult situation when they published this in 1835. They still had church members in Missouri. They hadn't been expelled from the state yet, but they had been kicked out of Jackson County. And so they were appealing to the government, both the state government, the state of Missouri, and the federal government they had written to to Andrew Jackson in the hopes of getting their land in Jackson County back. And so they needed to publicly declare their right to protest, their right to appeal to the government when they felt the government had acted in error. But they simultaneously wanted to reassure the government that they were good citizens, that they were supportive, because one of the claims and one of the criticisms that led to persecution in Missouri 
was this idea that they were seeking to set up an autonomous sovereign state to varying degrees. And so how do you get the government to pay attention to your protests, to your appeals, while not categorizing you as enemies of the state? Right. And then add to that, one of the frequent criticisms of the church, even outside Missouri, was the same idea that Joseph Smith was seeking to be both a religious and a political leader. How do you convince or at least attempt to convince your critics that that is not the case? And so this single declaration tried to do all three things. And that's why I think it's so uh, readily quoted or cited by people of various different political positions today. Yeah. So with this, I guess the origin of it was that this was presented to the saints when they were essentially coming together with what they had at the time as the Doctrine and Covenants. It would later be, of course, added to. But this was where they were adopting the Doctrine and Covenants, and this was being added as part of it? Yes. Okay. Uh, Sidney Rigdon and Oliver Cowdery proposed it. Uh, Joseph Smith was away in Michigan Territory on a mission at this time. And there were two additional declarations that were added to the revelations and the Doctrine and Covenants at this time of its acceptance by the church. One was a statement on marriage. One was the statement on government and laws. You did mention that Joseph Smith was away when this declaration was presented to the church. And we have some indication that it was Oliver Cowdery and Sidney Rigdon. Why was this the time then when it was being presented? Well, I think the idea was they wanted a published statement that they could point to whenever needed. It was a matter of pragmatism in a sense. Let's get the church to adopt this as a, a approve its inclusion as a section of the Doctrine and Covenants, approve it as scripture. And then it would be useful throughout the history of the church whenever the church needed to point critics or honest questioners to what they believed on government. In fact, that's what they did. We see its influence in the Articles of Faith, you know, which were derived from the Wentworth letter. We see when Joseph Smith is in Washington, D.C. in the winter of 1839, spring of, of 1840. So when Joseph Smith is on the East Coast in 1839 and 1840, he's in Philadelphia for a moment and he writes to the editor of a newspaper to answer criticisms that had been coming out about the church in the area. And he essentially repurposes almost line for line this section of the Doctrine and Covenants, but instead of we believe at the beginning of each verse, adds I believe. So even though he wasn't present for the writing or acceptance of this section of the Doctrine and Covenants, we see his approval by his use of it later. He used it almost as much as a personal statement of belief on government as it was a statement of the church's belief. In a, a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee in 1840, when Missouri senators were declaring you know, Mormon's belief in Joseph Smith as a political ruler, in addition to being an ecclesiastical leader. Uh, Elias Higby, who was representing the church, points to this and says, we published this long ago. It's been available a long time. If you guys want to know what we believe on government, it's here. So there was very much this sense of pragmatism. Let's publish it in a place that can be referred to very easily for the foreseeable future. Well, and it ended up influencing Joseph Smith's run for the presidency. In some respects, you can see it in the writings there. When we have this section now, Doctrine and Covenants section 134, we've canonized it as scripture. One can ask the question, it feels a little bit like this was maybe on the same level in its day as perhaps a family proclamation. Is it kind of similar? And if not, how, how do they differ in your mind? I think it's similar in many ways. It's similar in that it's not 
revelation or scripture in the sense of a thus saith the Lord type approach. So many of the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, we essentially are reading the voice of the Lord as dictated by Joseph Smith. In this case, we have a declaration that was carefully written by at least two men, we believe. Oliver Cowdery may have been the primary author, but Sidney Rigdon was apparently involved, drawing from some of Rigdon's recent writings as well. And so it's this carefully drafted by humans section of the Doctrine and Covenants. So in that way, it reads different than a lot of the other sections. The proclamation to the world on the family, we could say that the way in which it was composed is similar. Although, and I could be wrong on this, I don't recall a call for by the general authorities for church members to accept or sustain the proclamation on the family. Whereas here, maybe it's because the church was young enough and small enough, they actually brought it for a sustaining vote. And I'd say that would be a difference as well. And, and of course, we see this declaration on government included as canonized scripture and at least haven't yet seen that with the family okay. proclamation. But in its day, just to give it context, did was it kind of viewed the same way by members of the church? Did they readily accept it or was there some blowback on this? Yeah, I see no evidence of any um, uh, criticism by faithful church members of of this declaration. I think it was readily accepted. There is one particular aspect to this section, 134, verse 12 in particular, where there's this, I don't even know if you can call it an undercurrent, but there's this issue of slavery and abolitionism that definitely pokes its head in here. So what is the influence of the issue of slavery on section 134? And the second half of that being, what did they hope to see as the result of including that? Yeah, and oh, that's that's a tricky question and a good question. Part of what brought about the persecution in Missouri was a publication of the church or in a church newspaper, essentially making it known that free African-Americans were welcome in the Mormon community. Of course, Missouri was a contentious place where slavery was concerned. You know, looking ahead into the Civil War, it was a border state, a state that allowed slavery but didn't secede. And so slavery was, even back then in the 1830s, a very contentious issue. And you had a lot of slaveholders in the area that saw with this publication Mormons who they were already wary of. You know, Here they are now a threat to slavery. And right. so it helped bring about some of the violent response to the Mormons. Well, once removed from Jackson County, the Mormons saw an opportunity. They hoped to get their land in Jackson County back through this lengthy appeal process. And they hoped to kind of you know, silence concerns that they were going to interfere with slavery. And in this section, they don't declare their intent to support slavery, but they're not coming out as abolitionists either. And in fact, at the same time, they started a Democratic-leaning newspaper in Kirtland that had some of these same sentiments. And so essentially the position they're taking is one of non-interference. They're not saying we support slavery. They're not saying we are ardent abolitionists. They're kind of taking a step back and taking more of a neutral stance in hopes that that would help them in the long-term process of getting their land in Missouri back. Again, kind of a peacekeeping type approach. 
yes. in some respects. Uh, and, it, and it gets to this very complicated and long story of Mormon history where race and slavery is concerned. And it complicates that. It was never as cut and dry as, oh, the Mormons were always abolitionist or they were once pro-slavery and switched. There was this, this question among Mormons of what position do we take, not only for what we think is morally right, but what helps us obtain the, what we feel are greater ends, what Joseph Smith felt was the greater end, which was the establishment of Zion. It was hard to ride that line. Historians and scholars of all sorts have talked about this and will continue to talk about this and argue and debate. <laughs> I don't know if I have the, the final answer on this subject, but where this declaration is concerned, you can certainly see the influence of that question in some of the text. Yeah. I'm curious, what did you learn in writing this essay that you didn't know before? Yeah. So I did not know, and this may be, seem very simple, but I did not know that Joseph Smith was not involved in any way in the writing of the declaration. I knew he was absent during the meeting where the Doctrine and Covenants and this declaration were approved. But until I really, you know, dug into the sources, I can see no trace of his involvement. Again, we see his approval of it come later. I always had this kind of sense that when I read the Doctrine and Covenants, that until you get to some of those last sections where it's clearly John Taylor and Brigham Young. Joseph the, F. Smith. Yes, that, you know, Joseph Smith's involvement was kind of just assumed. And here's an instance where that assumption was incorrect. Anything else that you learned? Oh, there's probably a long list. <laughs> but really looking at this precarious place, I guess I gained an appreciation for the situation of the church. They needed to engage in the political system, but they wanted to be careful not to over-engage, not to give fodder to their critics that they were uh, a dangerous combination of church and state. And this is something that follows Joseph Smith throughout his leadership of the church, particularly post-1839. He's forced by circumstances to engage in the federal political system, but he's constantly trying to reassure people that he's not controlling the Mormons as a block vote. But then there's moments where he does feel out of necessity he needs to tell the Mormons how to vote. There are times where he offers the Mormon block vote to any candidate who would help their cause. And I think it's really easy for us to kind of draw basic lines of saying you're always going to operate in this way where you do not speak out on political issues. And I think he really wanted that. That was his ultimate goal. But circumstances just would never allow him to remain entirely apolitical. Yeah. And time and time again, Smith would have to engage in some way, shape, or form in, in American political culture. The 2016 presidential election has stirred up a lot of emotions for a lot of people. And in particular, there has been some discussion of Mormonism with respect to government. In fact, there were candidates that wrote articles that were published in local newspapers regarding their positions on the church. And so it seems like even though this was back in 1835, there's still so much that can be applied today that we're seeing in the political environment today. So if you had any takeaway that you could offer as lessons learned from the past that can be applied today from this particular section, what might that be? Yeah, I think ultimately you have this trust in the American political system, in, the, in democracy, that eventually we could bring about good. But there's this reality that there are going to be times where there are men in office who are acting against our interests, but also against what Mormons believe the interests of the country to be. 
and that there are times to speak out against it, to protest, to make your voice known. There's this central idea in this declaration that ultimately it's up to the people to elect the men, and now we would say women, though then that wouldn't have even been conceived of, but to elect men and women who will serve the people best. Now, of course, at the heart of this, and it's no different within the Mormon church or any other church, you have very different and strong opinions of what is in the best interest of people. And so I think one of the things I take comfort in in reading this declaration is the sense that early church leaders had that the democratic process could work in their favor, but it would never be smooth and it would take constant vigilance on their part. For those that don't know how to find the Revelations in Context essays on the church's website, is there a direct website or is there just a way to get to it? There are a couple things I would suggest. Um, Actually, you know, I have a bookmarked on my computer, but I tell others, you know, just search Revelations in Context LDS. It'll be the top choice on Google. If you have the Gospel Library app on your smartphone, if you go into the church history section, it's there and can be downloaded for free within seconds. And then there's actually a print copy that's coming out here in the near future. By the time we air this, it will probably already be out for just a few bucks. It's a paperback print edition in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for writing the essay and for coming in and talking about it. I know I learned a lot about the section's history and how it can apply even today. So thank you very much for coming in and talking with us. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. Going back to the brief overview, you listed 10 things that made the Book of Mormon interesting, but not interesting enough to study deeply. I, I'm bothered deeply. Well, I must be simple because I've been thinking about just these little ideas <laughs> since I read them. Number one is it's a long book. Just think about that. Why would he translate so much? I'm glad to hear that you, it gave you lots of ideas because that was part of the point of this book is I was hoping that it would start conversations because there's so much more to say and, and so much more to see in the Book of Mormon. Starting with the first observation, it is interesting that it's a, a long book and that's a little bit unexpected because if the point of the book is it's another testimony of Jesus Christ and it represents revelation that came to Joseph Smith and an angel brought it and it shows that there's a God and he's intervening in human history and he's called a prophet. You could do all of that with just First Nephi. You don't need this sort of long, complicated book that we have. And so that makes me think, well, maybe there is something to this long, complicated book. Why? What is God trying to communicate by giving us a scripture that's this long, that has this many moving parts in it? LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone, and LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.